Good morning. So let's go ahead and begin class of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are our loving God who has sent Christ to be our salvation and our healing. We ask that, uh, that you will now remember Dennis in particularly and uh, Jim Lewis's daughter, that you will send your healing agencies and presence to be with them and restore them to health as it is your will and be with the family and the doctors and the nurses who are caring that they can bring their ministry to bear in a positive way. We ask that you will join us today as we are studying that you will guide our minds and our hearts to draw closer to you. In your holy name, amen. A couple of announcements. Got a card in the mail this week. I thought I'd share it with you. It says, uh, Dear Come and Reason Ministry, I do not have adequate words to express my gratitude for your enlightened ministry. Your continue, uh, you continue to address so many concerns for me regarding historical Adventism. I, f- I finally am beginning to have some peace and assurance. God bless you. And then I got an email this week, and the email... Uh, This week said, uh, I would be first to admit that the remedy message is liberating, albeit I still struggle with some concepts, but by God's grace, the pieces will uh, start to fit one day. May I share the following? I was once told that a father who confesses his sins to Jesus in family prayer is is considered a noble act. I did this saying, Jesus, please forgive me my sins, thinking I was uh, uh, learning or teaching that my children would get that Jesus wipes away the record. But no change took place. But after hearing the remedy message, I prayed that I, knew, that I knew my sin was harming my character and my family. Please forgive me and teach me to overcome my impatience and replace it with your patience. Whilst I prayed, I felt so humiliated, admitting my sin to my family, humbling myself before the Lord and my family, recognizing I needed change in my character. Yet after this prayer, there has been transformation in my life and immediate impact on the family. Change takes place when it is applied correctly. God bless the ministry of Come and Reason's team. So we're doing lesson number nine in the quarterly book of Revelation, and the title is Satan and His Allies. And remember, as we study Revelation, I just want to remind us of this. Revelation is highly symbolic. Every person, as you study, be fully persuaded in their own mind, Romans 14. We don't have to interpret every detail of every symbol correctly in order to be saved. Salvation is found in Jesus, trusting him, open the heart, being reborn by the indwelling spirit. And saved people can disagree on the meaning of this symbol or the meaning of that symbol. No interpretation, however, this is my kind of foundation. No interpretation of Bible symbols should be accepted that represent God to have a character different than Jesus revealed. Or in which has God violating his own design laws upon which he built reality to operate. Laws of love and liberty. So with that in mind, memory text, it says, The dragon was angry with the woman and went to wage war with the remnant of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. And a reminder, who are the remnant? How do we identify the remnant? I would say those who live in harmony with God's design laws. As, and some people like the commandments, but the commandments can be looked at as rules rather than transformation of hearts. So it can be done externally. But the real commandment keeping, if you look at number 10, you don't covet. It's a heart change. So those who live in harmony with God's design laws and who give the same testimony about God that Jesus gave. Who are Satan's allies? That's what the title of the lesson is, Satan and his allies. Who are his allies? My suggestion is, and we're going to focus on two specific ones, uh, two beasts that are identified, but my, my suggestion is 
Any and all who accept and spread Satan's lies, use Satan's methods, and develop Satan's character. Would you disagree or agree with that? that? Those are Satan's allies. Spreading his lies, accepting his methods, and developing his character. You become an ally of the devil. So, what are Satan's lies, methods, and character? And this following I got here is an incomplete list, but I think these are core elements. If you see these elements at practice, you can say, whoa, 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 we're, we're becoming an ally of the, of the opponent here. We're not, we're not on God's side if we're, if we're doing these things. Uh, lies of Satan. God's law is imperial and functions no different than human law. Rather than God is the creator and his laws are the laws upon which reality are built. And therefore... If we have God's law as imperial law, then God, in order to be just, must use his power to inflict pain, suffering, and death upon sinners, and it becomes a legal penal process. This is an ally of the devil. You will not surely die. This is another lie. So first, first lie, and if you want to quote from, from Ellen White on that first one, Desire of Ages 761 or 762, I can't remember exactly, I think it's 762. Uh, in the opening of the great controversy, Satan declared that the law of God cannot be obeyed. If man should transgress, you know, God could not forgive. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. God must punish. He's the source of pain. He's the one we need protection from. It's not sin. Of course, the Bible does teach The wages of sin is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. Those who sow to the carnal nature, from that nature, reap destruction. When you understand design law, and we'll get to the power of sin in a little bit, just a moment, the power of sin, where it comes from. But you will not surely die is the next lie, Satan. God's law functions like human law. You will not surely die. So we're immortal. So it really doesn't matter how we live. We're immortal. Except we have a God who, if you don't do what he says, then he'll take your immortal soul and he'll torture you in hell for all eternity. So the problem isn't with your sinfulness. The problem is with the God he'll torture you for it. When you put the two lies together now. Eternal burning hell, which is where the unrepentant are, are, are tortured because they can't die now. And we have a God who must punish. Or, in some parts of the world, because we're immortal and can't die, we reincarnate over and over again. And we have many, many lives that we keep living. Or there is no God. Another lie of the devil. There is no God. We just evolved from lower life forms. The strong will survive. Survival the fittest. Dominate the weak. Get what you can now because if you don't get it, you'll lose it. Do unto others before they do unto you. These are the lies of the devil. And again, it's not an exhaustive list, but these are the big ones. Any other big ones? These are the big ones that came to my mind as I was reflecting on it this week. Satan's methods, then. Here are his methods. Those are the lies. Here are the methods. Lies, obviously, in various forms. Not just the factual lies, but all the subtle lies and distortions that come in. Lies. Flattery. It's one of Satan's methods, flattery. Bribery. Remember, he offers Jesus all the nations of the world if he'll just give in to him. Bribery. Threat, coercion, force, intimidation. In other words, playing on your fears. It can be a physical threat. It can be a threat to your reputation, a threat to your finances, a threat to your job, a threat to your kids. Something to make you afraid. The devil's methods. When we sin, God says, I can help you with this. Satan says, you're horrible. And he gives us despair, depression, a feeling that we're worthless, that we cannot go on, that there's no hope. 
Yes, so that is one of his lies, isn't it? Okay. That's a lie. But I'm glad you brought that one up because that specific one that we needed to bring up and I didn't have it on my list, so thank you. It's one of the lies that is common. You're no good. You've gone too far. You're too horrible. You're too dirty. Uh, The grace of God is is burned out. You've committed the unpardonable sin. This this type of attack, and then you understand now when you realize he's the one who's accusing, 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 accusing the brethren. Okay? Now you understand all the descriptions of Christ pleading his blood in heaven. He's not pleading to the Father because the Father so loved the world. He gave his only begotten Son. God is for us who will be against us. He's in heaven pleading and the Holy Spirit says the Comforter is going to come. He's not going to speak on his own. He's going to speak only what he hears. He's listening to the pleas of Christ and Christ is pleading via the Holy Spirit to your heart and mind. Don't listen to those lies. I died for you. I gave my blood for you. I gave my life for you. I've got a healing for you. So yes, there's this going on, but we need to understand it for what it really means and not through this penal legal thing where you have an angry God seeking to punish and needs to be bought off by the blood of a human sacrifice. Yes. One of the saddest things that Ellen White brings out is that when the angels started listening to Satan's charges in heaven, uh, he was deceiving them, but some of them thought, well, they got the feeling this was the wrong way to go, and they wanted to change their way back, but Satan told them it was too late for them. Another lie. Yep, yep. Some of them thought exactly right. She describes how, another lie, well, it's already too late, you can't go back now. Okay? And that lie comes to many of us. That's what she's saying. So it's a very, very poignant and powerful lie that I'm glad you brought up. Well, you just brought up another method, and, and the accusation. The accusation. Yep. Flattery. Flattery, accusation, good. And this is another one. Lawlessness. The lawlessness, meaning promoting violations of God's design law for humanity in all its domains. Unhealthy practices, whether those are physical practices of, of living an unhealthy life, whether those are relational practices where we, where we you know, violate the law of liberty and trying to control our spouse or, or, or whether they're psychological practices where we accept those lies that you just described in our own head, tell ourselves things that aren't true, whether they're spiritual practices, worshiping distorted uh, pictures of God, any violations of God's design law are damaging to us. And so he's lawless. He wants us to step outside of God's laws. Does that coincide with the idea that spiritualism promotes that there is no real difference between good and bad? So, so what is spiritualism? How would you define it? The definition I like for spiritualism in all its forms, and see if, see if this applies, is the pursuit of knowledge without the investigation of evidence or the use of reason. Think about it. Spiritualism. What do they want? They want to use the tarot cards. They want to use you know, dice. They want to use the guts of a dead animal. They want to use something to get knowledge. But they actually don't want to investigate evidence, reason things out from cause to effect, discover how reality actually works. They want some supernatural insight to give them knowledge. That's what spiritualism is in all its forms. Crystal ball. Tarot cards. Whatever. It began at the tree. Right. So... And your question then about spiritualism was? I'm not sure what the well is. Is it, is it the same as lawlessness? Which yes. Yes. As the pure yes. form of lawlessness. It is lawlessness because the God is the God of truth and there's a law of truth. Okay? And spiritualism is, is to, and God has certain methods that we understand and comprehend, which is what we engage our reasoning power to understand. And the spiritualism bypasses all of God's methods. And then Satan's character. So we looked at Satan's lies, some of them. We looked at Satan's methods. What about Satan's character? Selfish, 
cruel, without mercy, without compassion, hateful, vengeful. Yes? Yes? Yes. Okay? Yes. But he's also more like a narcissist and a control freak. and Yes. He's just like all about him. Yes, yes, that's selfish. Yes, me first. He's like narcissistic, highly dysfunctional. Yes, yes. Dishonest. So who are, yes, dishonest, yes. Who are Satan's allies then? Those who promote Satan's lies, practice Satan's methods, and develop Satan's character. Let's keep that in mind as we go through. Sunday's lesson, Revelation 13, 1 through 8. This is out of the NIV. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, and he had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men who worship the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. Men worship the dragon because he gave authority to the beast. And they also worship the beast and ask, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe and people, language and nation. All all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Let's just quickly run through and decode some of the simple symbols in, in this particular passage. Beasts in the passage represent nations. C represents populated places. Horns represent political power. Heads represent religious power. Crowns represent the source of authority. Blasphemy represents misrepresenting God. Name represents character. Leopard, bear, lion, Greece, Persia, Babylon. Dragon, Satan. Dragon's power. Lies. Hebrews 2.14, you can pick that up. Uh, Lies. Throne and authority. He gave his throne and authority. Throne is the foundation of authority. It's the foundation of a government, of a rulership. The law upon which it runs. Remember in Ezekiel chapter 1 and in chapter 10, we see God's throne. And God's throne is resting on a rotating wheel inside a moving circle inside a rotating wheel. The, the, the physical manifestation representation of the law of love. We've gone over many times how it's built into nature, the principle of giving, the other-centeredness, the law of love. And God's government's built on design law, principles of giving and love. He gave his authority and and um, thrown to the beast, and, and that's imperial law. Rules that we enforce by coercive power. Zillow White says, all compelling power is found only under Satan's government. And so this method of coercive force to punish people for breaking laws is the throne and the authority of the beastly system. Wounding and healing, a blow to the organization threatening to destroy it, but subsequent reemergence of its power, following the beast, accepting and promoting the methods of the beast, which are teaching God's laws imperial and enforcing issues of conscience by coercive pressure. Worship, esteeming, valuing, looking up to, adoring, a frame of reference to give life meaning and purpose. War. Wage war. What kind of war? Second Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. We live in the world we don't wage wars, the world does. Weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. 
We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So this war is centered on who God is, and we are to bring every thought into captivity to Jesus Christ, and our weapons, the sword of the Spirit, truth, love, that destroys these distortions and sets hearts and minds free. 42 months is a time frame, book of life, a data storage system where individualities of the saved are, are stored. So, yes, what, I would say, what's the message of this prophecy? Yes. Each one of these things is a counterfeit of what Christ is like. So he, he um, was here for three and a half years. There's three and a half years of prophetic time in which the beast is in control and gives his message. The names on the forehead, the character of Christ, of, of God, was on Christ. Each of these attributes are the reverse, are the false representative of what is God is like. Well, I like where you're going with that because we do know, and I think we'll get to it shortly, that um, you know the man of sin that Paul talks about in Thessalonians, the little horn power, the, the head that was wounded here, all pointing to this power that arises. The wound is like he was killed and then resurrected. Christ died and was resurrected. All these are symbolisms of who the fake Christ versus the real Christ. And I think we'll see that as we go through. What do you understand the whole prophecy then to mean? An organization will arise that combines various nation states and religious systems to misrepresent God as an imperial dictator. The power used will not be the power of truth, love and freedom, design laws, but the power of lies, selfishness and coercion. Rules, imperial laws and methods, which is the foundation and basis of Satan's government and power. The entire world will accept Satan's view of God and teach that God is a rule maker and the source of inflicted pain. And it's only just that the rule maker have a judicial process and go over records and use his power to, um, to inflict pain upon people. It's only just that God should do these things. Um, and the whole world drinks the wine and becomes intoxicated on this view thus giving honor to Satan because they become like the God they worship and Satan's image is reproduced in those who worship a system of the beast. All will become like Satan in character except those who have rejected Satan's lies about God and worship Jesus, the creator, and have God's design, law of love, reproduced in them and thus their individualities, names, are stored, written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I think that's what that's describing. We become like the God we admire and worship. The design law. When we accept the distorted views of Satan's, Satan's view of God and begin embracing and, and taking to heart those principles and methods, go out and teach those principles and methods, enforce those methods, coerce others, willing to, to, to kill people or imprison people or sanction people, they can't buy or sell, save those who have the mark, then we become in character like that, that deity. Yes. When we, we drink the wine of Babylon, we become drunk. We lose our reason. We lose our independence. We lose our righteousness. When we drink the wine of, of the communion with God, we have Christ's righteousness. Yes, and so when we drink that wine, the, and the wine is the, the toxic lies and distortions and the methods, and we become drunk and we lose our reason, then we do unreasonable things like, oh, we love you so much, we want you to have eternal life, so we'll burn you at the stake because you believe different than us, and then as you're dying, we'll have a priest give you last rites so we can send your immortal soul to heaven. Is that reasonable? No. <laughs> That's unreasonable. That's, your mind is confused. This is drunken. This is, this is very irrational stuff. 
I think it's worth noting that I don't disagree with, with Wendell's uh, description of Satan's uh, you know, agenda as a counterfeit of God's, but it's only a counterfeit of God's if you have the wrong concept of God as the penal you know, uh, lawmaker. In other words, God does not operate in any way, shape, or form like this. That's right. That's that's our whole our whole message. So you don't get you don't suck into the system unless you buy the distortions. Exactly. Right. So my, my, regular counterfeits are very close. You can't. I mean, a hundred dollar bill that you've made yourself has got to look an awful lot like the the original. Right. So that's yes, exactly right. Effective counterfeits are close to the... And, rem, and we don't have time to go in it, but remember we've talked about what Baal worship was in the past and how close it was to the true. Monday's lesson, first paragraph says, Revelation 13.5 specifies a time period of persecution that we talked about in yesterday's study. The 42 months of the beast activity, activities is the same time period as the 1260 days, years of the persecution of the woman church in Revelation 12.6. Uh, the year A.D. 538 marks approximately the beginning of, excuse me, appropriately the beginning of this prophetic period when the Roman Church, with the Pope at its head, established itself as a church-state power in do- that dominated the Western world throughout med- medieval times. The events of the French Revolution inflicted a deadly wound upon the beast in 1798, thus bringing the Church's oppressive rule and the state empowered religion to a temporary end. What do you think of this time period? I I think there's compelling case to be made for this historic view articulated here, and I think there's a reasonable, compelling case. There's lots of evidences they didn't go through to make that case. However, there are elements of the prophecy that are not addressed in the historic view. That, That leaves open the possibility that the prophecy is a dual prophecy. Just like Matthew and Jesus, Matthew 24, when you read that prophecy, some of it applies to Jerusalem, but some of it applies to the end of time. It's a dual prophecy. There are elements here that are not addressed. It leaves open the prophecies as a dual application, not only a historic one, which I'm not disagreeing with, but there's another application that hasn't necessarily been realized. Things that haven't been addressed in the historic view. If the beast is the Catholic Church only, uh, church... Uh, why is one of the seven heads wounded instead of the beast wounded? What about the other six heads? What are they? If that one head represents the Catholic Church and it was wounded, then what are the other six heads? And if the whole beast represents the Catholic Church, then why doesn't it say that the beast was wounded rather than one head of the beast was wounded? It doesn't quite fit to me. Or it says the entire world wandered after the beast. It says that. The entire world, every nation can do try, a whole world's wandering after the beast. Yet the papacy during this time period of 42 months only impacted Europe, really. The majority of the world wasn't impacted by this beast, if this was the whole, but it says the whole world. So there's elements here that, that seem to me that open up the possibility. Yes. Though that's true, because it didn't reflect the United States and Australia. Africa, South America, China. For the most part, most of what was going on in the world was in Europe, and these other ones were so... Tell that to the Chinese. Tell that to the Japanese, that most of what's happening in the world at this time is in Europe. Nothing's happening in your country. Well, it's, it's talking about, like, I, I see what you're talking about, the words... So God is only interested in the Anglos. He's not actually interested in the colored peoples of the world. 
But the world was dominated with the rippling effect of what was going on through its power. Either those that were Christians were under its sway, or those that rejected their message in, in entirety, they rejected Christianity altogether. So it was still controlling the whole world. If you reject the message of this system, are you rejecting Christianity? For, that's true for many people, because they would not want to believe in a God that is like... But were they presenting Christianity? Were this, is this system presenting Christ? Or is this the B system, which is presenting the Antichrist? Are they, is this system pre- going around the world presenting Christ? Or is this system going around the world presenting a counterfeit to Christ? That. Well, then, if they're rejecting it, are they rejecting Christ? Some people do reject God in general because of the way they, they represent him. But have they rejected God because they rejected a false view of God? Some do, some do. So I ask people all the time, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And they describe him. I get good for you. I don't believe in him either. Jesus said they, that to the Pharisees, that you travel the world to find a convert. And when you do, you make him twice the son of hell. As you are. I have so, so many people that have just totally disassociated with Christianity because of the things that they've been taught about Christianity. Therefore, they hate... And have they moved away from God? Or have they moved toward Him by rejecting This is the point I'm getting. No, they hate God because of who He is. It's no! They, they hate that God, which is a lie. You're not getting the point here. They're, they're, hating of, uh, they're, they're hating a false view of God, which means they've moved away from the lie, which means they're moving toward the truth, which means they're moving toward the towards the truth, which means they're moving toward God, whether they know it or not. That's what's happening. And we have to understand, that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 1, those who have not heard the, the Torah, the scripture, the law, but do by nature the things contained in the law, are law unto themselves. And he says this because in Romans 1, he says God's divine nature is seen in what he has made, so the men are without excuse. So when people see this imperial dictator God who says, do this or else, and if you don't accept me and do the rituals of my church, then I'm going to torture you in hell for all eternity, even though you, ne- even though you never really had much of an opportunity, I'm still going to do that to you. And they go, I reject that. And I said, I believe in principles of benevolence and compassion and love and other centeredness that I see practice in the world, uh, practice in nature, then, then guess what? The, Paul says, the law is written on their heart. That's the new covenant. So I would suggest, and this is what I've had conversations with people, you reject that God and move away from it, you have not moved away from God. You've, been, you've rejected it, embraced truth, and all truth eventually leads us back to God. Though that aspect is true, there's also other variables because I know people who are just just out out atheists. I know because they're rejecting that that bad God that's a false in, interpretation of him, but they 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 loathe the Bible, they loathe any of the Bible truths. They Because how has it been presented to them? Exactly, but they're still rejecting God and they are more than likely not going to be saved because they've rejected everything that is involved with it in its incapacity. You know, I, I just take a different view than that. because I, I think that we're both true, both right at the same time. They've rejected the impersonated, the, the counterfeit God, but at the same time, they've rejected everything about God altogether. They have a vehemence and an aberration and just abhorrence with anything that has to do with the Bible or any Christian values. Um, they just go off the, the other end. So it, it's not about whether they accept the Scripture or not. It's about whether they accept the character of Christ or not. If they accept love 
kindness, honesty, truthfulness, faithfulness, other-centeredness, compassion. If they're accepting those things, whether they accept the Bible or not, and they become like that, that's evidence of the Holy Spirit working in their heart, and that's coming through the work of Jesus Christ and what he's doing for them, even though they've rejected the views of the Scripture because those views are presented to them in a very distorted way. But what if they've never accepted Jesus Christ as if you, whoever believes in me shall not perish but have everlasting life? What if they've never accepted him? Or any of his principles. You got a comment? Yes. So there was a time before the Bible was written. And all those people didn't know the name of Jesus. They didn't have scripture to fall on. They knew love and other-centeredness. And it's not the name of Jesus that saves us, at least in my mind. It's the character of Jesus. It's becoming transformed to that individual of love that can only be manifested because you are open to the Holy Spirit and to love moving in your life. Whether you believe in Sabbath or the Bible or any of these things, it's really the relationship and the other-centered love that flows out of you that determines, in my mind, whether you're safe. Now, this is exactly correct. And the name in Scripture doesn't mean the appellation that we use, the, the word that comes out of our mouth. It means characters, what you said. That's what name actually means. So in the name of Jesus means in the character of Jesus. So Jesus himself said, they will come to me in the last day and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did. And, and he said, get ye hence, ye workers of iniquity. These are people going around doing stuff in the label of Jesus. Jesus, but in the name of Jesus, come out of them, demon. Okay. But they didn't have the character of Jesus. They rejected his character. There'd be many people like this. And then there would be people in heaven who've actually never professed Jesus as their savior, but they're only saved through Jesus, even though they don't realize it. That's what's happening. Jesus is still the source of their salvation. And that's what Paul's saying in Romans 1 chapter, uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 12 and on. So let's go on back to this. Um, the idea that this beast um, and this prophecy may represent both the historic view, but it may also represent a literal application of um, a three-and-a-half-year period yet to come, the Battle of Armageddon, so to speak, when the whole world joins together. And we as Adventists have, have kind of innately believed this. There's a future time in which all the world powers join together in a religious authority to begin to persecute the saints and so forth. This prophecy could be describing that. It could be a dual prophecy. We won't really know until it happens. But that's a possibility. Second paragraph. It says, the sea beast's activity during the prophetic period of 1260 days, years, are stated in terms of blasphemies. In the New Testament, blasphemy can denote a claim of equality with God and the action of usurping his authority. The sea beast's blasphemies are directed against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. The dwelling of God in his sanctuary, the dwelling of God is the sanctuary in heaven, where Christ ministers on behalf of our salvation. The sea beast seeks to negate Christ's mediatorial work by attempting to replace it with the human priesthood that claims to administer salvation and forgiveness of sins. Assuming these powers, assuming these powers that belong only to God is the essence of blasphemy. So to blaspheme God, misrepresent God's character, taking his place, and, and so forth and so on. How about blaspheming by rep- misrepresenting how God functions? Misrepresenting God as an autocrat, a source of pain and suffering, a dictator. Is it merely taking his place as a priest, or can you blaspheme God by representing him in the character of Satan? His so, tabernacle and, the, and the, where he dwells is also our minds, and when he replaces 
this presence in our minds, he's replacing also against those who are living in heaven. Paul talks about how currently we are citizens of heaven. And so when he speaks, when the, when the beast speaks against the saints of God, he's also speaking about those in heaven. So 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4, don't let anyone deceive you in any way until that uh, day rebellion comes. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will pose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple, tabernacle, sanctuary, proclaiming himself to be God. And that temple that Paul's talking about here is, is not a building in heaven. This man of sin didn't ride up into heaven and knock Jesus off his throne. He's talking about the spirit temple, setting himself up here. And how did he do it? By getting us to conceive of God in Satan's view. And how did he do that? By getting us to believe that God's law functions just like human law. Once you accept that premise, and it's not even questioned, folks. It's not even questioned in Christianity. Just go into any church and ask them. And God's law, justice requires God to do what? Just ask them, what does justice require God to do? Exactly, punish sin. Because they all accept that's how law functions. But if your child disobeyed you when you said don't uh, mess with any of the the, uh, bottles under the sink and you got all your house cleaning chemicals and stuff under the thing, and and for whatever reason your child disobeys your instruction and and you walk in as they're seizing on the floor because they just drank some, some poison under the sink, what does justice require you to do for that child? If you do the just thing, the right thing, what will you do? Well, I'll have to punish them. I'll have to get my belt out and beat them because they disobeyed me. Is that what justice does? No, in fact, everyone recognized it would be an injustice to do that. But this is how God is portrayed. After Adam and Eve sinned, they're dead in, in trespass and sin. We are dying of a condition. And God loved the world so much that he sent his son not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Immediately God does the just thing, the right thing. Christ was the lamb slayed from the foundation of the world. He steps in to bring healing, to bring remedy, to bring salvation. That's justice. But we have this perversion in Christianity that God's justice is God sitting in a judicial, judicial magistrate, going over records, looking at behaviors, seeing who has accepted a legal payment or not, and then he will use power to torture and kill. This is blasphemy. This is the beastly wine. This is the corruption. This is why there's no power in Christianity. This is a form of godliness, but no power thereof. You know, if there's any legitimate connection between what you're saying and what people somehow also believe that Civil governments are established by God to punish or to do enforcement of law. And that comes out of Romans. We respect the civil authorities. But why are civil governments set up? To provide salvation? Or to provide a certain order in a selfish world so that evil is restrained and the gospel can go forward. That's all. This is not God's method. It's, it's, it's what's necessary in the world in which we live. The man of lawlessness, it says. What does lawlessness mean? Lawlessness. The man of lawlessness. What does lawlessness mean? Without law, right? What law? God's law. But what, what, what kind of law? Without love, without design law. This is exactly right. And this man of sin, this man of lawlessness, promotes a lawless universe. A universe with rules and imperial dictates, but not protocols upon which reality. It's a lawless universe. 
It's an arbitrary universe. And he misrepresents that as freedom. I will say that when we got together, he had a Doberman. I had some little dog and, that hadn't really been trained. And the Doberman had been well trained. And so as we were walking along, he could let him off the leash and he would come instantly and do everything. So he was free to roam around. Because when he needed to be somewhere, he was told to be, he was there. My dog, you could never let him off the leash, her off the leash, because she was always running after squirrels and one thing and another. And so she had to be restrained all the time. She didn't have freedom because she didn't have law. She didn't have obedience. She didn't understand, you know, how to follow her master. What is the meaning of the blasphemy going on in heaven? What is the meaning of the, this blasphemy is what's going on in heaven? The lesson suggests that blasphemy is by replacing Christ as our heavenly mediator with a system of human priests who claim to be the mediator between God and man who can forgive sin and so forth and so on. Uh, is that the only way that we can blaspheme heaven no. and heavenly meet things? How about this one? Here's another way. That Christ's work in heaven is corrupted and blasphemed is to keep Jesus as our high priest in heaven, but to teach a lie about what he's doing. He's our high priest in heaven working in the heavenly sanctuary, but now we lie about what he's doing. We, we replace his design law and Christ's true work of writing his law in our hearts and minds. Hebrews 8.10, I'll write my law where? In your hearts and minds, what's the tabernacle we just went through in Thessalonians? Uh, the, the, the spirit temple, where's Christ working? Instead of teaching his recreating power to restore righteousness in us, we lie and teach that it's a judicial process, that he's going through recorded deeds bit, written down in some text of some kind, and he's erasing historical facts and records. He's hiding us from the Father. And he's hiding us from the Father. And another, so both the Catholic system and the Protestant system teach a legal lie that salvation is a legal process based on rules like human use. Thus, the heavenly work of Christ is, is blessing. A few years ago, I sent a link to a debate between a Catholic priest and a Protestant pastor over the Eucharist, and the Protestant was accusing the Catholic priest of, of sacrificing Christ over and over again because in the Catholic model, the, this turns into the literal flesh and the literal blood of Christ. And, and the Bible says he was sacrificed once for all, and and, you're, and every time you do the Eucharist, you're sacrificing them all over again. And the Catholic priest responded with this. This is a quote. There are two elements to any sacrifice, the immolation and the offering. The immolation is the bloody death. The lamb is slain. What is precious about that is the life is in the blood of the lamb. That is, that is precious and pays back God. That's how the Old Testament ritual used to work. The immolation happened once, but after, but the offering is something that Christ does for all eternity. He is right now in the presence of the Father, in the Holy of Holies, in the eternal presence, offering himself to the Father for the forgiveness of our sins. Christ isn't killed again and again and again. He is offered in the Eucharist, in the same eternal presence as Christ offers himself. So he's not, he's not sacrificed over and over again. He's offered over and over again. Every time you take it, he goes to the Father, offers himself to the Father, his blood to pay for our sins. Now, how do you think the, the uh, Protestant theologian pastor responded to this? He goes, he argued, oh, no, no, no. He's not in heaven offering his sacrifice to the Father over and over again to pay for our sins at that time. Oh, no. Jesus is in heaven offering his merits to the Father to over and over again to remind the father that all the sins were put on christ and already paid back that time so he's not offering to pay now he paid then and he's just reminding him of the payment that's made 
And both of them fail to see that they both have a God who wouldn't love you, wouldn't forgive you, wouldn't save you if somebody didn't pay him something, the blood of a human sacrifice. It's paganism. This is Baal worship. John 16, 26, and 27. John 16, 26, Jesus said, I will not pray the Father for you. The Father himself loves you. So many problems with this view, what? Yes. And then neither of the methods presented is there a change of heart. Yes, this is the point. So many, thank you for that. Thank you for that. And how is this false legal view infecting the Seventh-day Adventist church? It is taught that Jesus is in heaven, opening legal record books, examining them, and erasing from the historic record the record of bad deeds of those who have been legally pardoned. That's what's taught, is it not? There's so many problems with this view. One, it's based on the idea that God's law functions like human law. First lie. First foundational flaw. Second, it makes the focus on deeds and behaviors rather than character. Rather than the condition of the heart. It makes punishment for sin coming out from God rather than coming from sin. It makes the problem God's inflicted punishment rather than sin. Thus, we need to be protected from God, which is what the priest and minister were both promoting. The the Catholic priest and the minister were both promoting a view of something being done to protect us from God. But the Bible teaches that, here's this, I was going to tell you we're going to get to it, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. What does it mean? The power of sin is the law. Under the legal view, it means, well, you broke a rule, and God is sovereign, and he monitors his law, and he's got an angel following you everywhere like a police officer writing down everything you've done, and he will punish you for it or punish somebody, and if you don't accept him, he put all the sins on Jesus, he punished sin, and that's the, so, it's it's craziness. But here's what it means. It's very simple. The power comes, where does the power come to kill someone who ties a plastic bag over their head or jumps in the ocean and waits on their feet? Where does the power come that causes their death? The laws. Where does the power come to kill someone who jumps off the Empire State Building? Where does the power come to kill somebody who overdoses on heroin? Do you understand the power of sin is the law? These are the laws of health, the laws of physics, the law of respiration, the law of gravity. These are the laws upon which reality are built. And if you choose to violate them then there's power that destroys you. But that's not coming out from God. That's coming from the law. The law does not change. You jump off the Empire State Building and pray on the way down for good health and a long life. The law will not be bent or changed to meet you. And so the way it says the law is not changed to meet the sinner in his sin. It's not changed. What gets changed is the sinner. We get a new heart and right spirit. We get healed. We get restored. We get rejuvenated. We get recreated. We get put back in harmony. The law gets put in us. But this legal model cheats people. It cheats them. It tells them that, no, you're not going to be changed. You're not going to be healed. You're, you're a sinner for all, you're a sinner until the second coming. What changes is the record in heaven. And when the Father looks at you, he can't see your sinfulness because you're covered by the robe of righteousness. And even though you're still rotten to the core and you're still sinful in heart, it doesn't matter because Jesus' robe covers you and the Father sees you as if you're perfect even though you're not. Candy-coated rotten apple theory. Take a rotten apple, coat it with candy, And it looks on the outside, but it's still rotten to the core. This is fraud. The real gospel message is that we get a new heart. We live a new life. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We can be transformed in character. There's a hand somewhere. It was. Okay, all right. This view also keeps us afraid of not being loved in heaven 
if our sins that we committed on earth are ever known. We are afraid that if people knew our struggles when we get to heaven, that they wouldn't love us. And so we have to have a theory to erase all that so no one will know about what happened to us. But why will sin never arise again in the hereafter? Why? What's the reason it never rises again? Because we remember it all. And no one ever wants to go down that. We are convinced and persuaded fully in our own mind. We're all settled into the truth that we cannot be moved. We've been sealed, sealed in truth and in love. Why, why will we love God so much? Because we remember. Think this through. You have a child who's dying of leukemia and they're sick and you've seen them, you've seen them for, for the last 18 months getting weaker and weaker and weaker and your heart has been breaking. You've been crying day in and day out. Doctors can't do anything. And somebody comes in, a messenger from God comes lays hands on your child and prays and God performs a miracle and heals your child. Your child is now well. And tomorrow you wake up and you have no memory of the leukemia. But your child's still healthy. But you don't remember the sickness. It's all gone. You just have a healthy child. Does the fact you have a healthy... The fact you don't remember, does it undermine your love and appreciation? This lie, it's just a deep lie. We will remember and it will be so... We say, oh, thank you, God. It will be so much appreciation. And then... Where does sin actually occur? Does sin occur in record books or in hearts and minds? Then from where does sin need to be erased? From hearts and minds. That's exactly right. So, um, on, on March 16, give you guys a little, when I get back from Australia, we will release a nice little pamphlet. We're, gonna, we're having printed up right now. Release a pamphlet with a new paradigm which presents this unique Adventist doctrine of the investigated judgment through the design law lens. I think you'll find it most rewarding. And we, we hope you'll read it and then come back. We'll have lots of them you can share with people. But, but this is a message that we have supposed, been supposed to been giving for over 100 years and our church has gotten derailed into this penal legal lie and we've been paralyzed and we haven't done the work yet. And uh, I think this will kind of give a, a new paradigm, a new frame. I'm excited to share it with you when I, when I get back. Tuesday's lesson. Revelation 13.11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Very quickly. Um, then means after the previous beast time, perhaps after its wound of 1798. Another beast, meaning another power, not the same one that we've been talking about. Uh, earth, unpopulated places. Lamb-like horns. Horns that represent... Uh, um, Horns represent power. Lamb-like represents Jesus. Um, Jesus' power is truth, love, and freedom. So a power would arise on the principles of liberty and freedom around 1798, the part of the world that was previously undeveloped and uncivilized. Any, any suggestions what power that could be? Yeah. And the dragon represents Satan. What does it mean that the nation will eventually speak like a dragon? Despite its founding, this is what it means. Despite the founding principles of liberty written into the founding documents, this nation will one day violate conscience and liberty. That's what it means. Wednesday's lesson, last two paragraphs. When the early church became corrupted by departing from simplicity of the gospel and accepting heathen rites and customs, she lost the spirit and power of God. And in order to control the consciences of the people, she sought the support of the secular powers. The result, of the pa- the result was the papacy, a church that controlled the power of the state and employed its, it, it to further her own ends, especially for the punishment of heresy. When the leading churches of the United States, uniting upon such points of doctrine as are held by them in common, shall influence the state to enforce their decrees and to sustain their institutions, then Protestant America will have formed an image to the Roman hierarchy and the infliction of civil penalties upon dissenters will inevitably uh, result. What principles are being described here? 
What principles? In, imposed law, coercively enforced. That's what's being described. Uniting a, a religious viewpoint with secular power to make laws based on the religious worldview that is then enforced by threats of punishment. That's what's being described. Isn't that already trying to be happened? Let me, let me go. Let me keep going. <laughs> so what is most important? To identify the points of doctrines... The points of doctrines that people will eventually unite around, is that the most important thing? Or to recognize, regardless of the points of doctrine that they unite around, what methods are being used? It's, be- it's most important to recognize the methods, not the specific points of doctrine. See, we cannot win God's cause by using Satan's methods. Everybody hear me on that? Watch the methods. I'm going to get to what you were saying here in just a second. If we identify points of doctrine that Christians might unite around today in order to seek influence, in order to seek to influence their legislators to pass laws that they would enforce their beliefs upon others, what point of doctrines in society today, at least in America, might they be? Do you think the Seventh-day Adventist Church and Seventh-day Adventist Christians will unite with other Protestant Christians to pass Sunday legislation? You think that will happen? I don't think so. But there are other issues that all Christians might unite around in order to, as Ellen White says, quote, influence the state to enforce their decrees and to sustain their institutions and the infliction of civil penalties upon dissenters will inevitably result. We just read that. And what are those issues right now in society that Adventists are joining hands with all the other Christians to seek to pass legislation to coerce people and punish them if they don't obey? What are they? The abortion issue is one, and what's the other? Marriage. These two issues right now. Now, I am not speaking about the righteousness or sinfulness of either one of those issues. I'm not speaking about that. I'm speaking about the methods employed. The methods employed to achieve the goal. That's why. It's so subtle. Are you saying we shouldn't stand up for innocent life? Not speaking to that at all. You can't win God's cause by using Satan's methods. And people right now, Christians and Seventh-day Adventists, are being part of this system. And it is beastly, folks, to coerce consciences How are they using to... by passing laws to imprison, to take license, to find, to take... You know, no one can buy or sell save him who has the mark of the beast. What method is that? That's economic sanctions. But is the church doing that? No, no the, the, the Christians in America are seeking to get the legislators elected, the judges in place, to create laws to make certain forms of behavior illegal that their religious views have determined are unholy. And those are the two. Well, now, whether they're right or wrong, that's not the question. The question is, what is God's method? In the time of Rome... Were there violations of human rights going on in the Roman government? And how did Jesus and the apostles approach that? They had a senate. Did they have governors? Did they seek to get new people elected to office so they could change the laws of Rome? Is that how the gospel went forward? Or did they seek to change the hearts of people? And that's what I'm suggesting here. 
And then read the last paragraph now in the lesson, out of Great Controversy 445. It says, The image of the beast represents that form of apostate Protestantism which will develop when the Protestant churches shall seek the aid of civil power to inf- for the enforcement of their dogmas. Could these two issues fulfill that description? Yes or no? Yes, they could. Yes. I'm just trying to wake Adventists up because Adventists have been put to sleep that this is only about a day of worship. They've missed the method. And it might not be these issues. It might be the day of worship. But the point is, it's the method used. You first have to develop the compliance committees to make sure that the denomination is unified and fought and, and then take it to the state. Does this mean... Because we don't want to use the methods of the state to enforce our religious dogmas on people, does this mean then that we should support values that we don't agree with? No. No, it doesn't mean that at all. You can stand up in opposition of those practices that you think are unhealthy, ungodly, and sinful, but the method you stand up needs to be Christ-like. It needs to be God's methods, not the, not the methods of Satan in the world. And that is the trick. Adventists, are, Adventists and Christians are being duped into practicing the methods of the beastly system, uniting political power with religious institutions and things to coerce people to behave the way they want, who are not converted in heart. And that's what worries a lot of other people who are neither Christian believers or anything, but they see, even they see, that this effort to, to um, legalize various beliefs, is very concerning to people who aren't even Christians. They see that method as being wrong. So the Christian approach and the Christian gospel is primarily to transform hearts. That's the message. And you cannot transform hearts to be like Christ by passing legislation and threatening to punish people. You can't do it. It'll never work, yes. No wonder Jesus said to Nicodemus, you need to born again. Yes. Yes. Now I know why. And this is the devil's trick. I'm going to tell you, the devil's trick is to get good people to think they're doing good by passing laws for good goals, but it's ultimately using Satan's methods when it comes to matters of conscience. Yes. I see what you're saying, but does that mean we should question that we should not have laws, that you should not kill and murder? I knew somebody was going to ask that question. Thank you. Okay? To murder somebody else, to murder another person, is not an issue of conscience for that person. In other words, when you say don't murder, you're actually protecting another individual. You're not forcing the other person to, to, um, to do something against their conscience. The abortion question actually is forcing some people to go against their conscience. That's the problem. The woman. Some women, for various reasons, want to get an abortion. Their conscience is clear. Our conscience says it's murder. We want our conscience to be their conscience. We're telling them you can't do that because you're committing murder, so we're going to control your conscience and tell you how to control the choices you make and governance of your body. That's the violation there. Well, there's murder of an older person. There's murder of a younger person. But there's... but, you're, but you, you see, the difference is you're not going through someone else's body to do it. The best metaphor you could get to get your mind around this, let's say we have a, a babies that are three or four months of age, clearly independent of mother. They're alive, but they have kidney failure, and they're going to die. Should we force somebody, anybody who has a matching kidney, pass a law and force them to give a kidney to save that child? There's an innocent child. Should we force them to give their kidney? By law. Imprisonment if they don't. Yes or no? 
That's the issue that some people see when it comes to the question of abortion, that you're forcing a woman to use her body to bring a child into the world that she doesn't want to. That's, it's not the same as just murdering an independent life Donating form. a kidney is the same thing as donating your womb. That's what some people would argue. So it's an issue of conscience. We have to convert people, not coerce people. Same thing in the marriage issue to adult people that want to have a committed other-centered relationship. And we come in and say, well, you're the same sex. We believe that's wrong. Uh, well, we don't believe it's wrong. We believe it's godly for us to have this relationship. Every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. But we think it's sin, so we'll pass laws to make that illegal. And uh, in fact, and sometimes in human history, they, could, they would even imprison people for having same-sex relationships. Well, where do you draw the line? What is a bad law that humans make that's not necessarily coercion? No, all human laws are coercion. It's, but, but, it's not, but it's when you're coercing somebody else's conscience. And this is where the laws come. When you're an independent person, you don't have the right to hurt the person next to you, okay? but you do have the right to govern yourself. That might be my conscience. Well, what about They feel as though they're people who... You buy the drugs from them, they're not forcing them to take the drugs. And that's where that argument is being made. And there are societies like in Amsterdam where drugs are legal. So that is, a, that is an absolute argument that people make. We're adults, we should be able to use any drugs we want. You don't have a right as a paternal state to stop us from using. The state comes in and says, well, we think it's harmful for the organization, the state, the society. It causes us money, so we're going to pass a law to make it illegal. But, you know, that argument is made. Prohibition was done in this country. It didn't work, but it was done. Those arguments and laws can be made, and they are made. Well, even rape could be conscience-free. The person wanted me. I don't see it that way, because, because you're violating the other person's desire. But if someone is 15... That's not the same... I've got to move on. I've got to move on, because I really want to get the Mark of the Beast. We haven't got to the Mark of the Beast on, on Thursday's lesson. So what is the Mark of the Beast? The lesson says the Mark of the Beast involves the substitution of human commandment for the commandments of God. Is it really substitution of a rule, one day of worship, or is it the substitution of the entire system of law? Man's law, imperialism, rules, versus design law. And the mark, or the evidence of that, is the day of worship. How many church committees got together and passed a law? Hey, you know what? Because we've had all these fires in Southern California and bad smog, if you're a member of the Adventist church, on those days it gets really bad, our members don't have to breathe. Why don't church committees pass laws like that? It would be so helpful to the members, right? Because they can't. So what does it mean if a church does pass a law, to, ch- uh, to uh, pass a rule, a policy to change God's law? It means they don't see it as design law. They see it simply like human rules, just made up. That's all. And so the real corruption in Christianity didn't come simply by changing the Ten Commandments, number two, uh, splitting number ten, uh, changing number three, uh, which on their set is now three, our set's four. It, 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 that's not the real corruption. The real corruption is the fact that, you, that law is seen in a way that can be changed. That's the real corruption. And these are just the evidences of that. That's all. Their marks or evidences or signs. The real corruption. And so many Adventists are still worshiping the beast on the Sabbath because they present God's law in the same way the beast does, a system of rules that have no inherent consequence that requires the ruling authority to have a judicial oversight and punish penalty. It's just that we have the right rules. You've got the wrong rules. And so if you don't worship on Sabbath, then God will use his power to punish you. That's beastly. Read a couple of quotes to you. Men, uh, why are, this is um, from Review and Herald, April 27, 1911. Why are men not interested to know what constitutes the mark of the beast? 
The Sabbath question will be the issue in the great conflict in which all the world will act apart. Pause. The Sabbath issue. Excuse me, the Sabbath question. The Sabbath question will be the issue. How will all the world act apart on this? Do you think Muslims that are all over the world will suddenly start worshiping on Sunday and give up Friday? Hmm. What about agnostics and atheists? Or do these two days stand as signs, flags, penance of two systems? And everyone will choose one or the other of the two methods of which these days represent. And it really isn't about which day you go to church. It's about the method you uh, practice. And that's the, and the day stands for the two systems. Imperial law and rules and coercion versus design law, truth, love, and freedom. Christ died to save sinners, not in their sin, but from their sins. Imposed law constructs, the penal legal substitution model, teaches that uh, we are saved in our sins from the legal penalty. We're saved from the penalty of sin. We're not actually saved from sin. Thus, we continue to live sinfully until Christ comes. The truth is that God actually transforms us here and now so that we stop living for self and instead we live with hearts of love to God and others. We've been changed in the inner person. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death, Revelation twelve eleven. That's the gospel message. The penal legal model cheats people out of that because it teaches them you're not going to have that transformation. You're simply being saved from the penalty of sin. The warning given in Revelation shows us the terrible consequences of transgression. By lips that will not lie, God's law is declared to be holy, just, and good. Our duty to obey this law is to be the burden of the last message of mercy to the world. God's law is not a new thing. It is not holiness created, but holiness made known. It is a code of principles. What's principles? Principles rules? Or design protocols. It is a code of principles expressing mercy, goodness, and love. It presents to fallen humanity the character of God and states plainly the whole duty of man. Next verse, quoting scripture. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and with all your strength. This command contains the principles of the first four. And thou shalt love your neighbor as, as yourself. Upon these two great principles, the word of God declares all law hangs. These principles are made known by the third angel's message, which declares that the creator has always required and always will require obedience to his royal law. Why does the creator require this? For the same reason he requires us to breathe. It's a requirement to breathe. Why? Well, that's so arbitrary. I shouldn't have to breathe. Because that's how you're designed. That's the law upon which life is built. Remember, the law is not holiness created. It's holiness made known. It's how God constructed reality to operate. It's revealing his design. That's what the law is. But, continue with the quote, this law has been disregarded and transgressed and is now being ignored by the churches. Human enactments are placed where God's law should be. Imperialism, that God's law is a system of rules and he's heaven going over books and he's going to punish and hand out punishment. Human enactments, human, desi- human imposed law is, is where God's design law should be. And then I'm going to read this and we'll close. Review and Herald, July 13, 1897. The time has come for the true light to shine amid moral darkness. The true light, moral darkness. The third angel's message has been sent forth to the world, warning men against receiving the mark of the beast or of his image in their foreheads and in their hands. 
To receive this mark means to come to the same decision as the beast has done and to advocate the same ideas in direct opposition to the word of God. What is it to receive the mark of the beast? To be beastly in your character. To think and practice the methods of the beast. Imperial law that requires you to, in your mind's justice, to inflict punishment, coercion upon other people. That's the beastly way. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are our creator and you are nothing like Satan has alleged you to be. Lord, the whole world is deep in distortion and misunderstanding. Darkness covers the world, gross darkness the people. But you are the light and you have called us to be lights to this world, to, be, to take a message to this world at the end of time, the, the, the eternal gospel, to lighten the whole world. And we ask for the outpouring of your whole spirit to remove obstacles, to create opportunities of communication that this world, word may go forward, that the people can see the truth of your beautiful character and your design law of love and that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.